0: Hey, folks, welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Dan Shapir. Hey, coming to you from Israel at war. Charles Max Wood from Top End Devs. I uh, got some exciting stuff coming through right after Thanksgiving, so stay tuned. We have a special guest this week, and that is Patrick Meenan. Patrick, do you want to introduce yourself, let people know who you are and why you're famous?
1: Sure. Um, I, I don't know if i go so far as famous, but um, so I've spend a fair amount of time uh, working on Chrome in particular, but web performance, web loading, that kind of stuff. I guess probably most likely people know me for creating webpagetest.org uh, sort of a diagnostics tool that gets used a fair bit in the performance world. Uh, but I spend my, my day job um, trying to make the web faster.
2: I have to pause us here, you know, just to say that <laughs> I that I really, well, I I wouldn't go as far as say worship, but I very greatly appreciate what you've done for the web platform with Test. It's it's an amazing tool, one that you know if you anybody who cares even a bit about performance should be familiar with and using. And it's made such a ton of difference. And, you know, it's kind of part of the platform now. What with it being integrated with HTTP Archive? So it's really an amazing contribution to the web from my perspective.
1: Awesome. Thanks. I mean, it's a lot of fun to work on, too. So <laughs> that's the main reason I got, I spent so much time with it.
2: Cool. Do you want to so, tell the people yeah. a little bit about what it is? Sorry, Chuck, for. <laughs>
1: no, I was going to ask what it was. So go ahead. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, web page test, um, it's, I guess in its most most basic form is a, a website you go visit to. Uh, you give it a URL for a page you want to test and uh, get to pick from a location and the device that you'd like to run the test from. And it'll load the page for you, gather all sorts of diagnostic information, uh, record video of the page loading. And then I guess the, the sort of superpower is when it reports the results to you, it gives you a film strip of the page loading at like 100 millisecond intervals. Um, synchronized with the water network waterfall of the the res- resources loading, uh, with JS uh, parse and eval times in the waterfall and all sorts of details to help you sort of diagnose loading performance and make things faster. Um, and I mean, we even use it a fair bit on the on the uh, browser side of things to validate like uh, largest contentful paint and some of the the newer metrics. That have been coming out uh, we usually validated it against uh, something like web page test with the film strip to make sure that the times we're reporting elements painting are actually the times elements painted on the
2: screen so somebody who's interested in web performance but you know maybe not an expert mm-hmm. in it might be asking at this point like what's the benefit over just using the the chrome dev tools why you know the network specifically the network tab inside Chrome DevTools. Why do I need an external tool that seems to be doing something well almost identical as it as it were?
1: Yeah, I guess the, the two big benefits of running it through web page test uh, one is the, the physical location. So running a real device in a real place uh, not in your house on your network. And so if you want to do a test from another country or something like that, or on uh, a phone. But the the real performance reasons for uh, comparing it to like the traffic shaping and dev tools, for example, where you emulate a, a mobile connection. Um, one of the things WebPageTest has always done is try to be as accurate as possible. And it uses packet level uh, traffic shaping that makes it look like an actual 3G or cable connection. Oh, wow. um, and including things like TCP slow start and everything else will behave properly. Um, so you can actually test like CDM configs and things like that. Whereas uh, doing it in DevTools is a little bit of a stretch. You can do it locally on a Mac if you use uh, the the connection emulation stuff that the Mac provides. Um, but it's sort of a, an extra level of fidelity beyond what you get in uh, DevTools or Lighthouse.
2: Uh, yeah. I I have to totally agree. I mean, I I found the network maps that I, that I got from the web page test to be, to to see, to appear to be much more accurate and reflective of what actual users from the various locations on various devices actually experience compared to what I see in, in Chrome DevTools or even in Lighthouse. So I, I greatly appreciate the effort that you put there like you said, with actually emulating the different types of network and obviously running from the actual different physical locations around the world. Uh, I mean, if you've got users coming to your website, say, from Southeast Asia, then you really should be testing what people in Southeast Asia are experiencing uh, and not just, you know, trying Mm -hmm. to guesstimate what it feels like.
1: Yeah, I mean, the real fun ones are behind the Great Great Firewall in China, for example, right? Uh, where you yeah. can actually run yeah. tests from inside of China and see uh, if you're including <laughs> like a Google third-party tag or something that'll completely destroy your performance, uh, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, but CDN configs, uh, all of that kind of stuff are useful for testing in real
2: physical locations. And, and as I recall, in uh, to be honest, I've not played with it a whole lot, but I recall that uh, in recent uh, years or even year, uh, the tool added capabilities like the ability to like, modify the JavaScript or the download order or stuff like that, like run all sorts of experiments without actually physically changing the, the code or configuration of the website, right? Yep.
1: Um, so it's always had sort of the ability to... Uh, override the host and you can point it at your own back end so like if you want to test cnn.com but rewrite it you can rehost the HTML somewhere else and it'll load it as if it was cnn.com that was in the last I want to say two years uh, expanded to give you a a pre-baked set of things that it'll do automatically for you uh, where it can uh, try optimizing the order of your JS CSS it can try uh, removing things for you and I think one of them is even like apply fetch priority automatically to your LCP image and see what. And so you can do sort of what if experiments and see what it would look like uh, if those things were done without having to do the actual dev work.
2: Yeah, this can be really valuable at times. I remember where we, one website that I was working on, we were certain that inlining the CSS would be v- beneficial. And so we did. And it turned out to be actually detrimental. Uh, You know, it doesn't really matter why, but, you know, you can't argue with the actual numbers. Uh, And, you know, being able to run an experiment like that could have saved us work.
1: Yeah, and the other thing it gets used a lot for is um, there's a blocking capability where you can block uh, specific requests from being fired. And so... A lot of sort of the first reaction is to blame third parties for performance issues. Uh, So one of the common use cases is go in and block your ads or block your third parties or block a specific third party and run the test with and without. And you can have a side-by-side impact and say, okay, this is how much faster it would be without that third party or not be uh, before going and talking to that third party about the issue.
2: I think that Chrome DevTools is actually gaining some of these capabilities. I think I've seen features like that in recent versions. Yep. Well, like I said, I'm really appreciative of this tool that you've built. Are you still working actively working on it?
1: A little bit. Um, so I do help run the HTTP archive as well. And as part of that, we run uh web page tests at scale. And probably, I want to say it's probably by far the biggest scale deployment. We run probably upwards of 15,000 VMs. Uh, running crawls wow. uh, every month, and so um, yeah, so I still contribute uh, fixes and things to mostly to the agent that does the testing. Uh, Catchpoint took ownership and responsibility for running the main web page test website uh, and building it into their suite of products.
0: Maybe I was going to say, so it's oh. not a Google thing. It's a
1: no. It, I mean, it was and still is uh, an open source thing. I had originally built it when I was at AOL. Um, pre-Google even. Uh, and so I had always run it on the side uh, until probably about three years ago, uh, Catchpoint took over and it's now running it. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so maybe, you know, we did have Rick Viscomi like a while back on the show to talk about uh, Crux and, and stuff like that. But I think it might be beneficial to repeat again or explain again what HTTP Archive yeah. actually is.
1: Sure. Um yeah so the HTTP archive it started out um as part of the internet archive i want to say 2012 give or take um with Steve Souders wanting to keep an archive of how web pages were built rather than just what they looked like and so it started out with a fairly small number of pages that we would test like the top 1000 or something like that and it would store uh the network waterfalls um It got its name HTTP Archive from the... It would store the HAR files of the HTTP loading of all of the pages that we were testing as well as the videos and that kind of thing. And so when uh, Rick and Google, to some extent, uh, took over running it, it's expanded a lot uh, since then. And so now, I'll say probably the last two or three years uh, with the uh, Chrome User Experience Report, the Core Web Vitals, all of that kind of thing, uh, we've expanded the HTTP archive to crawl all of the pages that CRUX, or all of the origins that CRUX has in the data set. So something on the order of 23 million origins, uh, plus one page deep of a crawl within each of those origins. So we don't just hit landing pages. And we effectively load all of those in web page test um, w- once a month and we store the results in BigQuery uh, as JSON, like all of the request data, response data, headers, performance data, payloads, um, so we can run analysis on it, or anyone can run analysis on it. It's an open uh, data set on BigQuery, although it can be
2: fairly expensive to query if you're not careful. So basically what happens is that You know, maybe it's also worthwhile to mention like a bit of info about Crux. So basically, whenever you use Chrome to visit a website, Chrome sends performance information, unless you opted out, Chrome sends performance information, anonymous, of course, about the experience that you, the user, had to the Chrome user experience report database where that information is stored and it can also be queried. And actually, Google even uses it as a ranking signal uh, for the search engine. In addition to that, that kind of synchronizes into the sister database, which is the HTTP Archive, where you take the same websites and then run, you know, various synthetic tests on them. One of them being, like you said, web page tests. So for at each one of these websites, you have both the field data that's gathered by the Chrome browsers and synthetic data that's collected by various tests such as web page tests, correct so far?
1: Yep. Yeah. And I mean, part of what we also collect is uh, we run a Wappalizer detection on as part of the HTTP archive crawl to extract what technologies we think the page uses. And so that powers a lot of the... Uh, Core Web Vital report by technology. So, if you want to see the reports, where React versus Vue LCP pass rates is one of the like public dashboards mm-hmm. that gets shared a fair bit. All of those. What was
0: that? Wapalizer?
1: Uh it, it used to be open source. It has since been forked, um, but it's uh, very similar to Built With. It uh, basically runs a bunch of. Checks on the pages to see and extract information about hmm. uh, the technologies that are used on the page, and so it powers a lot of the Chrome User Experience Report uh, technology-based reports.
2: Uh, yeah, I've share. actually contributed to that one in the past. It it basically like looks at which files the uh, uh, website loads. You know, the actual even names of the files. It looks at stuff like uh, you know various meta tags, so like generated with and stuff like that, and tries to figure out which technologies a web page actually uses. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I actually used all this data. I actually gave a talk at several conferences uh, where I compared the performance. Well, it's not exactly compared the performance. It's more compared the likelihood of building a fast website using various frameworks. Based on existing right. data. Um, so, so yeah, um, it's really very useful information. But yeah, I was mostly looking at the crux data, not the, the webpage page test data, because I was really mostly interested in, in the, in the field data and the actual user experiences. But the segmentation was done based on, on, uh, Webalyzer. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I was looking for, uh, looking at is also if I could see correlation, for example, with the amount of JavaScript being downloaded and, and stuff like right. that. And that kind of information is, is uh, I recall, does come from web page tests and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, all of the the details about how the pages are built and what's on them comes from web page tests, and then the the real user field performance data is what comes from Crux. And so both together in the same data set makes it really easy to do that kind of join. Right. Now, like now you I'm said, just curious, oh, sorry, I'm like sorry,
0: who's ahead. who performs best? Is it quick or
2: solid or React or somebody else? Well, it depends uh, mm-hmm. based on the, the, the really? last time that I looked. No, look, the thing is this. Uh, <laughs> what you, first of all, it's important to note that correlation does not mean necessarily causation.
0: Right, fair. Uh,
2: and But but the key, diff but there are a couple of, of points to remember. First of all, the number of websites built with the different technologies vary a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are, like, React has as many origins or websites as all the other frameworks put together. Um, so, and, and on the other hand, in the top 10 million websites you've got all of something like 50 websites built with quick so it's kind of difficult and problematic to compare you know hundreds of thousands of react websites to like a handful of of quick websites also with quick you assume that you know people who are using quick or on the bleeding edge are mm-hmm. probably more performance minded than right. the average you know company using react so it's, it's kind of difficult to compare, but the situation is the last time I checked, WIC has pretty good results for those handful of websites. They, they, they perform really well. Uh, React, it's not so good. I think it's something like somewhere between 30 and 40% of React websites actually have good core web vitals. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's kind of unfortunate, but it's the reality. Look, there are also a lot of React websites where they don't really necessarily care so much about performance. I mean, you know, if you're building some sort of a dashboard, then, you know, you may not actually care about performance, mm-hmm. where, w- which you would if you're building, right. let's say, an e-commerce website. So, yep. So your needs, your mileage will vary based on your needs. But that's not what we're here to talk about. I mean, it kind right. of is. It, no, I mean it kind <laughs> of is because it all it all ties into performance. But but we are here to talk about mainly about something that you recently spoke up about at the uh, PerfNow or PerformanceNow conference in Amsterdam, right? Yeah, I mean
1: that's the the big one, the latest hotness: uh, compression dictionary transport stuff. Okay, it's my
0: brain bit. just got its eyes crossed.
1: <laughs> Yeah, and it it takes a little bit to wrap your head around, but it's it's sort of cracking a nut we've been trying to solve for ten, fifteen years, give or take. Um, I'll say back in the day when privacy and security weren't a problem. Uh, <laughs> when was that? <laughs> okay, we're we're less of a pre pre specter and crime and breach attacks. I'll say <laughs> where side-channel attacks weren't a problem. Uh, We used to have uh, effectively delta compression at the HTTP level um, for doing HTML with custom dictionaries and uh, SDCH. And so that got killed because it uh, opened up HTTPS connections to side-channel attacks uh, from Mm. compression. And so over the years, we've been trying to find ways to bring it back unsuccessfully, hopefully until now. Um, and sort of part of that sort of evolution, we went uh, through HTTP2 launched and we did the whole, let's unbundle all of the things so we can uh, do updates of just one module instead of a whole web bundle, for example, when uh, like one import gets updated. Uh, that ended up having two critical problems with performance. Um, The first one was uh, compression. So compressing a thousand separate files results in much lower compression rates than one large file with everything Mm -hmm. bundled together. Uh, And so we think we've solved that part of the problem. Uh, The other part that it also uh, had was there, it turns out there's an awful lot of overhead in the browser Uh, when you request a thousand different things versus when you request one thing. Uh, There's a lot of IPC checks. There's a lot of, like, even just having to check the disk cache for a thousand things uh, takes a significant amount of time. And so...
2: If I I can pause you for just a second, because I think we ran through a lot of stuff really, really quickly. And I think it might be worthwhile, at least from my perspective, to back up a little bit. Because, for example, some people might be asking about why even did HTTP 2 change stuff? I mean, you know, what was it about HTTP 2 versus HTTP 1.1 that even made the difference? I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, I think even that's worth exploring a little bit before we dive into all the technicalities that you've just spoken or been talking about. So what's the big change from HTTP 1.1 that was by the way around for like the majority of the existence of the web right. like i think we switched from http 1 to http 1.1 within months or something like that of, of the web and then we got stuck with it for something like 20 years and and only then did we get http 2 so what was the big change that in 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 that transition that really impacted the way that you download files and in particular javascript files
1: yeah so uh I guess the the big thing the big win for http2 uh was multiplex. So with http1 uh you could effectively only request one resource wait till you get it and then you have to make another request on a given connection. Uh make another request for the next resource wait for it etc. You could in theory uh do pipelining although that never worked in the wild uh where you could request a <laughs> bunch of things and then they would come back, but they would still come back in the order they were requested. Um, but the the web in general is kind of broken with middle boxes, and so pipelining never ended up working. Uh, and so browsers sort of worked around some of the round-trip overhead and waiting until you get one response before being able to even send the next one by opening a bunch of connections in Parallel. And so browsers generally would open up six connections to each origin so they'd get some level of parallel activity uh, and mm-hmm. not waste round trips. Because um, otherwise, you request one JavaScript file, wait, and each time you have to do that, you waste a round trip on, uh, with the connection going idle and everything else before you get the next one. Right. And so, what It was means- the
0: same for images and CSS files too, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, JavaScript is sort of the, the real painful one because it's all, right. at least head JavaScript is all render blocking and so you can't do anything right. uh, until you get each and all of them uh, done. And so uh, with HTTP2 and multiplexing, you can send all of the requests. Um, HTTP2 had its own issues with prioritization, but it had a priority scheme where the client could tell the origin the order or the rough order that it wanted the responses back, and then the origin would do its best to try and deliver those resources in the order that it was requested um, but if it doesn't have data uh, for a given one, it would just pick the next lowest priority one, and so it would always make sure that the pipe was full and it could do out of order responses and pipelining and all of that kind of thing. okay and so. The theory was you have a 1,000 uh, JS files on your page or whatever, you could request them all and they would just stream in as one big blob effectively uh, with no extra overhead.
2: And the advantage here being that you theoretically don't need to bundle anymore. I mean, you know, we we tend, theoretically, I mean, yes. yeah. Uh, on the surface, know, we...
1: looks like a good idea.
2: <laughs> yeah, let, let me
0: tell you how much I love those build systems.
2: Yeah, that's the thing. Nobody loves the build systems. Everybody loves to work or prefers usually to work with relatively small files, Mm -hmm. like file per component or stuff like that. And so you in the original source code, you've got like a million separate JavaScript files, but you need to go through something like a Webpack or an ES build or roll up Mm -hmm. or whatever in order of VIT in order to, you know, effectively get transform all these small files into one big, huge file that gets downloaded all at once, or let's say in the HTTP 1.1 days, six files or less if you wanted any form of parallelization in the download, right? Uh, And now with HTTP 2, people were like saying, hey, you know, multiplexing, we can download a million files over a single TCP connection. Why not do it? Uh, why not just, you know, use the files in the original format, especially now that we've also got the JavaScript import statement so they can import mm-hmm. each other and, you know, just work in the original JavaScript structure like uh, Brendan Eich originally intended or whatever. And turns out that it didn't quite work. Well, and I mean, I guess technically it works. It's just not fast. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of slow. Uh, so, one problem obviously you already mentioned is compression. The fact that tiny files uh, don't compress as well as you know larger files. Why is that by the way?
1: mostly just the the context in the window um, the The types of things that you see in one js file tend to be repeated from a, another js file and so it can uh, when you have them all together, the compression can back reference to those other things that it saw in the other files Mm -hmm. and get much more effective compression.
2: Yeah. So because lossless compression is basically built on identifying repeated patterns and encoding them and then by basically just sending the code instead of the entire pattern. So the more patterns you can identify, the more compression you can achieve. And in order to identify more patterns, you actually need bigger files. More stuff. Yeah. More stuff. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, The other thing, I guess, would be the waterfalls, right? The fact that uh, if you've got one thing requiring the next thing requiring the next thing, rather than just downloading it all at once.
1: Yeah, and I guess that's sort of the import maps um, thing or preload. That's As far as JavaScript modules and imports go, um, naked by themselves, yes, it's a problem that you don't know that a.js requires B.js until you've already loaded A.js and see the import statements. Right. Uh, in theory, uh, that problem becomes a non-issue if you just happen to have, if you either preload B.js or you have an import map in the in the markup that has all of the, the imports that you're going to need.
0: Um, and you evoked his name, so I'm just going to say it. this is the method that uh, David Heinemeyer Hansen, DHH, prefers and is built into Rails.
1: Yeah, and I mean, so that solves the discoverability problem. It doesn't solve right. the overhead problem. Okay. And, and, and that's both on the, the compression overhead and the per-request overhead. And it's a balancing game. When you're talking dozens of files, the overhead's maybe not that big of an issue. When you're talking hundreds of files, right. you're talking like the change from one second to, to load them all to now taking three seconds. And so it, it starts to become significant.
2: Yeah, and and one more point. So we mentioned kind of one point about the benefits of not bundling, which is the fact that you're just staying closer to the original structure, so there's less complexity with the build process. But you kind of mentioned another one before, Patrick, and in case our listeners kind of missed it, uh, which is the fact that you reduce the amount of cash invalidations and you av- and av- avoid the need to download mm-hmm. the same stuff over and over again, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, so that was part of the the hope for unbundling was if you uh, update a, an import or a third-party dependency or something like that, uh, you could deliver just that update instead of having to re-deliver the entire bundle uh, for a, a one-line change, right? So it, it's especially if you're doing releases multiple times a day, Uh, having to send the megabytes of whatever of JavaScript for a a one-line change uh, is kind of painful.
2: By the way, when I was at Wix, we used to do multiple releases for the Wix platform every day. If you look at the Wix platform in its entirety, uh, as I recall, they were talking about a change every two minutes. Uh, Oh, wow. A a deployed change every two minutes. Now, obviously, you know, that kind of depends on which parts of the, the platform you're actually using and whatnot, but just the, the basic Wix software that every Wix website is using get used to... I don't know what's going on there now. I'm not there anymore, but it used to be updated like once or twice a day, every day.
0: Yeah, Geo in the comments on uh, YouTube, also is mentioning that the bundlers in a lot of cases... Um, would do things like tree shaking and, you know, remove parts of the code you don't need and shrink your overall size that way, too. It might speed things up in that way.
2: Yeah, but if you don't bundle, then you don't actually... And and to keep the file small, then if a file is not actually ever needed, then it's also not actually downloaded. Right. Uh, But, yeah, tree shaking can also even get you at lower-than-file size reduction, Mm -hmm. like... You know, you might be moving actual single uh, function even theoretically from the code. So, so yeah, bundlers can do a lot of magic.
0: Yeah, it, it sounds like that's what Patrick was saying in a sense that, yeah, depending on what your problem is, you know, import maps might do you a whole lot of good or, you know, the bundler might do you a whole lot of good just depending on, yeah, a lot of these variables on how often you're deploying or how big the change is or where the change is or, you know whether or not you want to deal with source maps or you know any of the other things that come into play and so you know one may work out great for you one other one may work out great for somebody else and there may be a combo or some magic formula that you kind of work out that says okay if I bundle these things together they tend to not change so much and so you know I can get away with having one less round trip or four less round trips but then I import maps a lot of the other stuff because it's small, and if it
2: changes then it, you
0: know, and, it like nice the and it gets to be a
2: maintenance and it gets to be a maintenance nightmare because code changes, code moves around, yeah. and you need to start you know and 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 if you don't watch out, then your maps can get you know out of date out of sync, right. and you're potentially end end up doing more harm than good, but now, going back to the whole compression issue, so we yeah. spoke about the fact that one of the big problems with. Unbundling into really small files was that you kind of lost out on the mm-hmm. compression of 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 you know uh, protocols like uh, Gzip or brotli and ended up downloading a, a lot more data than you other o- over the wire than you otherwise would have had you bundled. I understand that that is what you were looking to solve with with this uh, proposal, right?
1: Sort of. Um, I think. Probably better to say that this proposal solves being able to do the delta updates while keeping the compression benefits of the bundle. And so um, I guess at, at its core, uh, the compression dictionary transport lets you use a previous version of a file or any file in the in the on the user's machine that has advertised itself as being able to be used as a dictionary as a dictionary for a future request. And so the common case for that is if you're bundling your JS, for example, uh, and we'll call it like app.js, and you hash them and you have versions in the the URLs or whatever, but you can say version one of app.js can be used as a dictionary for any future version of app.js using this uh, path spec. And wow. so when the browser goes to request version two of app.js, it can tell the the origin. By the way, I have app one, app version one of the app.js in my cache already. Uh, just send me the delta uh, or send me the dictionary compressed yeah. version of the, the file. Yeah. So the origin can send down just the delta compressed uh, patch, if you would. And so it
2: basically gives us patch loading uh, for resources on the web. That's really slick. And does the bundler need to, need to be cognizant of that? I mean, the so do... bundler doesn't
1: necessarily need to be cognizant of that. And there are a couple of different ways to do it, but um, what on the the bundle side of things, it's probably best to have something like a post build step uh, that takes your bundled assets and uh, for one release and the bundled assets from a, X number of previous releases and uh, generates artifacts that are d- dictionary compressed versions of the the new bundle compressed using previous versions as uh, with the dictionary. So you get the delta artifacts for each one. And so at serving time, uh, you can pick, hey, the client said it has uh, version one, uh, the hash of version one is a dictionary. Let me send the the artifact that is the Delta compressed version against version one instead of the the full resource. You don't have to do anything dynamically, uh, but at build time, you can generate the artifacts. For that Uh, case, there's also an HTML uh, dynamic use case
2: as well. So the web server needs to be kind of cognizant of this whole thing. I mean, it gets a request and it needs to serve different things based on not the URL, but based on like fields in the HTTP request header. Yeah,
1: and I mean, it's not unlike you could in theory, and you do at times uh, pre-compress with Brotly and pre-compress with GZIP, uh, the static version of the asset, and then Mm. the web server will just pick the the .gz or the .br version of the file from the server and serve that if you have it. Uh, And the client has advertised Brotly or GZIP uh, capability rather than doing it on the fly. And this is effectively the same thing, but it's looking at a different header as well. It's looking at the advertised dictionary header. Uh, but yes, it, it re- requires either um, a CDN edge or app server-specific logic that knows how to look for the headers and the content encoding and pick the right file to send
2: back. Ah, so but, this might also be implemented by the CDN rather than by the yeah. server?
1: Because it can it can try the a version of the URL that has the dictionary in the path All right so it can append mm-hmm. the dictionary value to the end of the file name and try requesting that and fall back to the main uh, file mm-hmm. if it doesn't have it and then it can just pull it from cache uh, because it'll use using the very headers and everything once it's in in the CDN cache it can just serve it directly
0: so basically, I'm going to back up about two steps. My understanding is, is that, um, the compression effectively, you know, like Dan says, it finds all the patterns, right? And then it says this pattern is, you know, entry number 2000. And so then whenever it says, Hey, I've got entry 2000 here, then when it decompresses, it just puts that pattern back in. Right. Um, and I, I know I'm oversimplifying a ton of this stuff, but, effectively what you're saying then is this allows you to do patch level stuff because one of the entries in your dictionary could be that patch as opposed to the pattern. And so you could, does it work that
1: way? Effectively, version one of your uh, JS uh, becomes the patterns, a collection of patterns. And so you can say, like you have a one-line change in version two of the JS Mm -hmm. file, for example. Everything before that, can just be replaced with a token that says, hey, pull yeah. version one of JS from byte X to byte Y, and everything uh-huh. after that one can be another range that was... In, okay. So you basically compressed it down to a token referencing most of the file, mm-hmm. the one-line change, and a token referencing the rest of the file from the previous version.
0: So can it token across files? Because you've been talking about app version one, but if app version one is like 12 things i've stuck in my import maps or taken some other way of getting them in can i
1: so you you can't you can't have multiple dictionaries that you pull from for example can
0: you have one dictionary that applies to all of your files though
1: yes so you can and that's we tend to look at that more in the the html or api use case uh, for dynamic resources where you can build a dictionary that has the common things uh, like if your HTML okay. is generally has similar head, similar meta tag, similar structure, mm, similar okay. color across all of your pages that can go into a dictionary that is sideloaded. Uh, you do link rel equals dictionary to sort of sideload and load that as a dictionary. And so future requests for HTML pages can say, Oh, and by the way, I have this dictionary that has already all of, all of your common template things. And then in that case, if you're doing, Compression directly on the on the origin or in the CDN, it would need to have the dictionary available to do the compression. But you can basically send down deltas of your HTML uh, where all of the common stuff is compressed out. Uh, same thing for like API calls, GraphQL, JSON stuff that tends to be very verbose in general with keys and tags stuff that tend to be very common uh, can all be compressed out into an external dictionary. So you end up with just the actual data part, uh, almost a binary transfer of API, even though it's still JSON. And as far as what you see, it's still JSON. Mm-hmm.
2: This is it pretty sounds... amazing. I mean, yeah. it, with, with the exception of, of media data, which I think this whole thing is potentially less yeah. relevant I mean, for. It right. doesn't
1: care that it's text. It can be binary data, but there's not a lot of repeated uh, media data. Like the the one completely convoluted use case that I came up with is if you have color profiles in all of your JPEG images, for example, that are big and happen to be <laughs> the same color profile you embed in all of them, in theory, you could have a dictionary that has that color profile and compress it out. But the the dictionary compression itself doesn't care text versus binary. It's just byte strings. Um, but the use cases are definitely much more the text files um, mm-hmm. that you see.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting too from the standpoint of I see this solved the um, you know the common pieces of the page. Um, so I I work primarily in Ruby on Rails, and so you know I talked to David about a lot of some of these ideas, and one of them's in Turbo, which effectively you know it'll either load in new chunks of HTML, mm-hmm. but uh, Turbo. Which piece of it? There's one piece of it where if you hit a link, it sends back all the HTML from the server, but then it does a diff against it, right? And it finds all those common pieces and says, this is the same, I'm not going to reload it. And so it seems like this is kind of a a backward way of of solving the same problem where now it's, hey, look, this is the same, I'm telling you this because it's in the dictionary, and so don't load it.
1: Yeah, don't transfer it over the network. And that's probably one key thing to remember is, it does still parse, eval, execute right. the, the full file. And so you're not magically only evaluating 1K worth of JavaScript now. If you've got a 10 megabyte JavaScript file, it's still parsing and executing mm. all 10 megabytes of it. But at least we've uh, solved the delivery side of things.
2: Yeah, or we're, we're sending
0: that's... a skinny set of packets instead of a yep. fat
2: set of packets. And and when do, uh, when do we expect to see this in a server and browser near you?
1: Uh, it's already in front, it's in Chrome one nineteen as an origin trial uh, so it's in stable today oh, Cool. cool uh, so you can go ahead and play with it there are companies experimenting with it um, I will say it, most it has of, a
0: graceful fallback right so if my yeah, I mean, is it'll, in Firefox, no problem
1: it's no it's completely progressive enhanced I mean if okay. you don't advertise the dictionaries the server doesn't send anything back uh, if you do advertise the dictionaries and the server doesn't either have the dictionary or an Asset compressed with that dictionary, it just serves the original uh, response. So it's uh, completely transparent, uh, completely progressive. That's good. And so, yeah, I mean, none of the servers or CDNs, for example, will do it all for you yet. Mm -hmm. Um, That's still part of what the origin trial is for, is to see what the what the pain points are, if there are any, for the CDNs and servers. Uh, most, of the, most of it's being done either in application servers or uh, just at serve time with the file, picking the right file to serve that was already pre-built using the, the command line tools. Uh, that, w- that said, I do have, I'd say it's probably 50% complete right now, a uh, WASM implementation of a Z standard that does dictionary compression to run on the Cloudflare worker. Uh, so mm-hmm. we could do both the dynamic and static use cases on an edge worker uh, where you don't have to do anything at the origin or in the app servers.
2: I mean, it, it feels like,
1: completely wrong to be doing compression at the edge in Wasm, but hey, <laughs> that's what it's for. <laughs> well, hey, if it's something I don't think about.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, wh- but, you No, know, it's pretty yeah. awesome from my perspective. Yeah. Why, why do you feel like it's wrong?
1: Um, because you're running compression in effectively js JSVM instead of natively on the hardware. Yeah, but
2: it's in WASM, so. And
0: it's on somebody else's hardware. That's what I was going to say. It moves it out of the realm of, oh, this is right in the mix of everything else that I'm doing, and it puts it out there so it's like, okay, this is another way of doing it. It's another system. It's another, right? And so it, it, yeah, it's it's a different concern now from my writing my code and whether or not it compresses and builds.
1: Yep. Although I will say, sort of, as far as how it builds and bundles, um, there will probably be some opportunity for things like Webpack and things like that to have more, I'd say, consistent or predictable builds from uh, or bundles from build to build uh, because. If you're using a previous version as a dictionary, uh, shaking the tree the same way, keeping fi- function names the same from release to release, or even including the same modules in release to release, will give you better compression. Right? So mm-hmm. it works remarkably well with no changes
2: needed, but it can be better as well. It's it's we live in interesting time for bundlers. I mean, you know, bundlers are becoming first of all the whole. <laughs> yeah, but the whole, the, first of all, bundlers are not really just bundlers anymore. They're effectively transpilers sure. slash compilers these days. I mean, if you look at stuff like that's happening with React server components or in Quick, which mm-hmm. we kind of mentioned before, the bundlers have, re- you know, really sophisticated task of deciding what stays on the server, what goes to the client. Uh, slicing and dicing the code, you know, tree shaking was mentioned. Um, yeah, it's it's becoming really difficult to build, a, 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 you know, a bundler that does everything that the modern bundler is expected to do. Which I guess is why Vite is so popular, because if you can get this kind of universal bundler that does everything for you, that makes life easier for all the framework makers and and whatnot. Uh, but, but still, you know, well, here's another concern for the bundler makers. Uh, build the dictionaries.
1: Or yeah. build the bundles in such a way that dictionaries will work well with them.
0: Right. Yeah. So, Patrick, what's the downside? Is there a downside?
1: Um, I sort of mentioned it already. It's still delivering or effectively Becoming the whole file. Uh, for CDNs, one of the things to worry about is the varies. Um, you'll now have uh, more copies of responses in your cache. Uh, so you may end up blowing out caches and things like that if mm-hmm. you're not careful. Like if you say, keep a year's, so the dictionary response has its own TTL time to live in the response headers. And you can say, tell a browser how long, how old it is allowed to be when it requests the dictionary compression to help mitigate that. But if you say, uh, keep all dictionaries for a year and you do releases three times a day or whatever, Mm. all of a sudden you've got a thousand possible variations in the wild of headers that are coming in that are buried on your
2: cache. A thousand is an understatement. I mean, it's like every version compared to every previous version.
1: Well, for the current release that you're on at this point in time it could be delta compressed against a thousand previous versions oh
2: you're saying let's yeah. clear all the previous versions except yeah yeah
0: yeah that here's how here's here's the dictionary that gets you from where you are to current not from where you are to any other version right.
1: and so the the risk there is uh if you're not careful about your your windows compared to your release updates your your caches uh will right. effectively become uh Runaway, Exponentially large. <laughs> well, at, usually linearly
0: large, I think.
1: Yeah, they'll they'll usually have limits on how many variants the CDN, for right. example, will cache, and so you'll just have stuff that doesn't get cached, and you'll hit origin for those cases. But uh, if you if you balance the the time of you allow for the dictionaries against your release schedules, you can plan that out fairly well. Um, it obviously it requires more work, right? It's not mm-hmm. broadly where you can just turn a flag on your CDN or on your edge server and it magically, everything gets smaller. Um, you need to either generate the dictionaries if you're doing HTML or API stuff, or you need to do the Delta compression artifacts uh, and do the the logic for picking the right one to serve. Uh, so there's a little more work involved, but I think the, the value that you get out of the end is well worth it
2: and i imagine that you've probably ran some tests you know so if uh, if somebody asks like for an, for an average website what are the expected savings going to look like you know or yeah, what would I'm you sorry. say
1: so, so average is a tough thing um but i will say <laughs> like on on the html <laughs> side of things uh we ran so the the github repo that has the the dictionary transport explainer also has some examples, but um, just pulled a bunch of e-commerce and um, news sites and that kind of thing. And for the HTML side of things, when we use a dictionary and search, when you use a dictionary created for those, you tend to get uh, results that are forty to sixty percent smaller using a dictionary than if you didn't use a dictionary. Mm. Uh, so it's a very significant saving, and that's smaller than the best Brotli or the best e standard uh, compared.
2: It's, it's, let's say, so basically we're talking about around 50% size reduction compared to what's downloaded now. But you're, that 50% is specifically for the textual files of the website? So that's, the that's specifically for the HTML case,
1: uh, where you generate a dictionary for based on the HTML. Ah, HTML okay, I understand. So that's for the smaller. page itself. Uh, for JavaScript on a version to version upgrade, um, it depends on how much you change. Uh, but some examples, like the YouTube desktop player, which is 10 megabytes of JavaScript uncompressed, uh, is 90 to 95% smaller uh, when you do week over week Delta updates than the best Bratly. Um, their Wasm, we've seen Wasm 60 to 80% smaller. Uh, and that's for doing a delta compression that knows nothing about WASM. Um, Vercel's app bundle uh, from one week to the next week uh, was 98% smaller, I think, when we took a look at it. And so it depends on how much you change. If you rewrite all of your code or you completely change how they're bundled, um, then you're not going to get nearly those savings. But it, it it can be very significant especially for those that release frequently with smaller changes
2: yeah if if you release yeah. every day and every day you write all of your rewrite all of your code then you've got a problem right
1: <laughs> but yeah so I mean, if you're in something where you have a tempo of your releasing every day you should expect in the 90 plus percent smaller than broadly even
0: right and if you have people coming back every few days they're just going to pick up those tiny pieces that changed yep right if somebody comes back after a year, then yeah, they may have to pull the majority of the file. But
1: but that's what they're doing today.
0: Yeah. So that's... is there a tool that does this for me?
1: Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm lazy.
0: I don't want to make this myself.
1: Uh, so doing it all for you? No, uh, at least not yet. Uh, that's probably going to be something like a value add or something that the CPNs provide. Mm-hmm. Uh there are command line tools for doing the, the Delta compression, for example, if you want to create the artifacts a, after your build. Uh, Brotli and Z standard, the standard command line tools will do that. If you want to generate a dictionary off of a bunch of HTML, um, I have a website that will do it for you. Uh, use as dictionary.com, which just happens to be the header name that you uh, use. Um, please don't abuse it too bad. It's a machine running in my basement. But... Um or um uh, the Bratly Bratley uh repo has a research tool called Dictionary Generator, which is basically what I'm hosting, mm-hmm. that you can run against uh, a whole bunch of files and it'll pull out the common bits for you automatically and generate a side dictionary for you.
2: So uh, but
1: but... as far as a click a box um and do it magically, that's coming would be my best guess. Uh not
2: yet. Okay. So coming means that you expect the next generation of bundlers and leading frameworks, meta-frameworks, to kind of do it out of the box?
1: So I don't know that bundlers will ever do it. What I expect, uh, CDNs will probably be the first ones. And what you'll probably be able to do is say, tell it the path where your application code is, and it will automatically add the necessary headers and do the delta compression from one version to the next for you. And it will automatically, and you'll have to probably give it a dictionary or at least a a collection of URLs to generate a dictionary off of for the dynamic case. And then it can handle all of the the header negotiation Mm -hmm. and everything else for you. Um, The worker that I have that'll do everything in WASM will probably be able to do all of that as well uh, if you don't want to wait for a CDN to to build it as a feature. Uh, But that's probably as close to automatic as we'll get.
0: So I really like the idea of running code that came out of your basement, but
1: <laughs> well, I mean that's where test started its life too.
2: It was it the same basement?
1: <laughs> uh, we've moved since.
2: <laughs> so uh, so essentially, you're 2.0. saying essentially you're saying that at least to begin with, it's going to be work for the DevOps people in organizations rather than for the developers in those organizations.
1: Probably because it's all serving time stuff. So the developers will just go ahead and create their bundles as they did. And then when it goes pushed to production, either the artifacts will get created or uh, someone will take care of configuring something else.
2: So the devs, of, the devs, or dev ops people will do all the work. <laughs> the developers will get all the credit and the marketing people <laughs> will blow everybody out of the water by adding a 12 megabyte GIF into the website well in so other words the,
1: things never change the developers are doing the devops right that's the dev part of devops
2: <laughs> yeah somehow that i used to, the... i used to be young and naive too <laughs> <laughs> oh so and and currently it's you said it's in origin trial in chrome what what are what's the what's it looking like with the other web uh, web browsers so all of
1: the browsers are supportive of the uh spec. There haven't been nobody has found any privacy or security concerns uh with the, the latest iteration, which makes me very uh confident that this is something that will ship in some form. Uh we're currently bike shedding on what we call the headers and the values and that kind of thing, as you know, spec <laughs> standards tend to do. I love that um, term. Yeah, but we're um it's going through the HTTP working group in IETF right now. Um, so we'll have it as an RFC uh, plus part of the fetch spec, uh, or sorry, the HTML spec on the what, WG side of things. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we filed positions with all of the browsers. They've all been very supportive. Uh, my guess is uh, we'll need to shake out uh, in Chrome, uh, the, the actual user experience and get things sorted out and get people using it before there's adoption across all of the browsers. But there's no objections to it, which is, you know, a thing in and of itself.
2: Yeah, from uh, my experience at the Web Performance Working Group, the W3C Web Performance Working Group, getting all the browsers to agree can be a challenge.
0: All right. Well, uh, anything else that we should let people know about before we start wrapping
1: up? I, mean, I think that's the, the big one on compression dictionaries. Um, definitely try them out, though. The whole purpose of the origin trial is to let us know what works and doesn't <laughs> work in your environment. Mm-hmm. And if you just wait for it to get out of the origin trial uh, and then complain that it doesn't work in your environment, <laughs> it's a little too late at that point. And so um, it is in production. You can use it with stable users and get all of the benefits today. Uh, and hopefully help steer uh, any changes that need to happen to it.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, we are getting toward the end of the scheduled time. So um, I think we wanted to talk a little bit more about performance and Core Web Vitals and some of that stuff. Um, if we can do it in less than five minutes, we can go for it. Otherwise, I think we should just go to PICs.
1: Yeah, I mean, i would just give you two quick... Uh, okay. Easy wins, sort of cheat codes for Core Web Vitals. Uh, fetch priority, uh, a spec from last year or so. Uh, it's a cheat code for largest contentful paint. If you fetch priority equals high on your hero images, uh, they will load sooner and your LCP will go from poor to passing uh, for the most part. And uh, if you support HTTP 3, uh, Chrome 118 rolled out support for HTTPS DNS records um which lets you tell chrome that you support http3 at dns time instead of connection setup time and it saves you effectively one round trip on your your first visit and so that can be another cheat code to get you a a quick one round trip off of all of your times anyway so those are the how,
0: how do i do that how do i tell it that i'm http3 happy
1: So there's an HTTPS DNS record where you can advertise. uh, It's a special DNS record type uh, where you can advertise HTTP3 support. Uh, Cloudflare does it for you automatically uh, if you're using Cloudflare and have them doing your DNS. Uh, Otherwise, it's just a record type that you add to your DNS record.
2: And it's worth mentioning that all modern browsers support HTTP3. So there's really no reason not to use a CDN vendor in a server configuration that supports HTTP 3. It's a quick win even without that DNS record. And if you can throw that DNS record into the mix, then you get even better time to first byte, which usually speeds everything up along. Yeah, yeah, Safari Safari
1: has supported the record for going on two or three years now. And so there's... Yeah. You'll you'll get benefit outside of the problem.
0: I found a page on chromestatus.com that talks br- in brief about the feature, but it has a link to the spec and a few other things on it. So I'll put that in the notes here or the comments on Facebook and.
1: And uh, Cloudflare, you know, the the yeah. blogging company that also happens to write run a CDN has a really good blog post on the. <laughs> H-
0: yeah, I, I think I got that one here too. So I'll I'll share it in the comments as well on Facebook and YouTube, and then. We'll get it in the show notes as well if you're on another platform. So, um, cool. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Dan, do you want to start us off?
2: Okay, it's not exactly a pick, but it's something. Uh, as as I kind of as everybody probably know, there's a war going on in the Middle East yet again. Uh, this time between uh, Israel and Hamas in Gaza. Um, I've kind of been trying to be kind of active about it on social networks. Uh, obviously, as an Israeli, I cannot claim to be objective, and I won't even try to. Uh, but I will say that I try to be fact-based, uh, which means that everything that I say, as far as I can help it, is based on actual factual data, even when that data isn't, you know, necessarily pleasing. For my side, as it were. Uh, now, where do I post stuff? Well, obviously on X. Um, I recently purchased uh, the badge thing, so I can actually post, you know, things that are longer than just the what is it, two hundred and what sixty, uh, to whatever. So now I can post longer. I, I, I you know, I don't write essays within X. I don't think that's the proper you know, platform for it. But uh, I do tweet stuff. Um, so that's one place where you can see my perspective on what's going on. Uh, the other place is Quora. Um, I, I kind of got into Quora several years back. Uh, for a while, uh, I was one of their top writers. I don't know if you're familiar with Quora. It's like this. Mm. I like to say that in Stack Overflow, you ask how you do something. And in Quora, you ask like the why you do something or something along these lines. And obviously, it's not just about tech. Um, so I, I got on Quora a while back. I even became like a top writer for a while. And then it kind of, you know, you drift to other things uh but now i'm kind of back there uh and i uh write answers about things currently mostly related to the current conflict so again if you're interested in my perspective on those things uh search for dan shapir either on x it's a shapir with a double p or you know obviously the listeners can see my name as the panelist on the show mm-hmm. or alternatively they can find me on quora and again i i, I in, in the past, I wrote a lot of stuff about, you know, history of technology and stuff like that, like why C-sharp happened, why, you know, JavaScript happened and stuff like that. But in, in the recent weeks, I've been primarily uh, posting about uh, the ongoing conflict. Uh, so if anybody's interested in that, um, the other thing, and I I have to say that, like I said, I don't claim objectivity. For example, um, I, I recently went, I've actually went several times to this kind of vigil slash rally for all the uh, Israelis who are kidnapped in Gaza. I don't know how much you know, but there are now, there are over 240 Israeli civilian, well, Israelis, most of them civilians, uh, uh, kidnapped inside Gaza. The oldest one uh, is 85. The oh, youngest wow. one is, is 10 months old. Uh, So think about a 10-month-old baby held hostage in a war zone. Um, And uh, yeah, it's pretty bad. Uh, I also did want to mention, like I do almost any episode, that the ongoing war in Ukraine is still very much ongoing. And it's a literal meat grinder there. uh, And the Russians are doing some pretty horrific things. Both of the Ukrainians and to their own soldiers uh and um you know so you know the war in the war between israel and gaza is not the only war um and yeah those are my unfortunate picks for today
0: all right yeah um it's always tough to follow that because i think we get some of the information anywhere from a couple of days to a week later you know and Anyway, I just I'm just hoping, yeah, that 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 stuff can get figured out. But you know, I've said it before: if if Israel's getting attacked, they have to respond and respond in a
2: way that makes it not happen again. So yeah, it's it's a really problematic. I'll give an example: uh, they recently released film from you know that uh, soldiers and drones recorded in Gaza that literally shows uh, Hamas tunnel exit pier. Uh, in the courtyard of a hospital in Gaza. Mm -hmm. Now, that effectively makes that hospital a legitimate military Military target, target. which, which means that theoretically, Israel could shell the hospital. But obviously, that would kill all the people in that hospital. Is that something you do? On the other hand, if they're actually literally firing at you from there, do you not fire back? It's right. a really, yeah, you know, yeah, bad situation. I don't, I don't, I don't even know what to say about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're basically left with two options that have dra- kind of drastic outcomes. So, I don't know. Um, and yeah, I know I don't know. Literally means I don't know what the answer is supposed to be on that. So, because um, yeah. Either way has, has consequences that I'm not entirely pity, comfortable horrific, signing off yeah. on. Yeah. So anyway, um, I'm going to get a little more lighthearted here. Uh, <laughs> go so, for it. Please do. <laughs> last weekend, um, so Saturday in particular, um, I went down to TempCon. I told y'all I was going for the last few weeks. Um, so we have been playing these, uh, board games and uh, one of the games that we taught there is called, uh, Living Forest. And I think I might have picked it before because I might have picked it when I played it with my friends. But um, what you're doing is you have your own forest and you have a forest spirit. And um, so then effectively you're recruiting other uh, forest spirits, which are kind of animals, uh, into your deck. And then you lay out the deck until you get three. If you get three solitary animals then you only get one action on your turn. If you stop before you get three, then you get two, two actions. And then you can recruit animals, you can plant trees, you can uh, fight the fire spirit. Um, if Yeah, and if you can't overwhelm the, the fire spirit at the end of your turn with your water, then you actually have to pick up fire cards, which are effectively uh, solitaries that don't do anything for you. So you're much more likely to have to stop sooner so you have a, a real incentive to make sure you don't um, that you put out enough of the fire to where you can uh, be safe from it at the end of your turn and the way you win is you collect uh, 12 of one uh, or 12 of one of three tokens so you've got trees unique trees so you, so when you're buying and planting trees if you plant enough so that you have 12 unique trees you get then then the game ends and if nobody else gets 12 tokens of any kind, then you win. And if somebody else does get 12 of some kind, then you count up all the tokens that count for all three kinds and whoever has the most of those win. And and that's effectively it. When you put out the fire, you get fire tokens. Um, and then the other one is lotus tokens. And the lotus tokens are whatever lotus uh, icons you accrue during your turn. But you can also get extra tokens in, from your forest and by There's an, where the fire is, there's a track that you move your your Uh, primary spirit around and if you pass other players you can steal their tokens and so um you know you could wind up with up to five tokens uh, lotus tokens or whatever fire tokens or uh, unique trees that you've pulled from other people and so and that and that's the game and so it's relatively simple but there are a lot of different ways of going about things because you get bonus bonuses from the trees and you know, you, the different animals give you different, uh, icons you can use for your actions. And so anyway, it's, it's pretty fun. Um, of the six games that we taught, it's probably my second favorite after first rat. Um, and so I, anyway, I really, really enjoyed it. So I'm going to pick living forest. Uh, let me look it up on uh, board game geek. Uh, yeah. So board game geek has it at a weight of 2.19. Um, and I tell people that 2.0 is kind of a, an easy casual game that has enough to it to where it's kind of a a fun challenge right a one is like it's it's super simple it's the kind of game, game i play with my kids so two is you know a, an adult who's not deep into board games you know could pick it up without too much trouble so uh board game geek weight 2.19 and uh yeah uh the artwork on it is awesome uh just really really enjoyed that game so i'm going to pick that um I don't know if I have any other picks this week. Um, I've got some things coming down the pipe. Um, effectively, um, I'm doing the full launch of Top End Devs membership. Um, I'm planning on charging $97 a month for that. We're going to have weekly calls. Uh, we're going to get different people on to talk about various topics. Um, you know, probably haven't asked me anything, you know, so if you have career questions or uh, about uh, technical topics that I or whoever I bring on to do the uh, Ask Me Anything Can Answer, we'll answer them. Um, and then, yeah, we'll just have experts come in and talk about different things every week. Uh, it'll also include the book club and it'll include uh, different video tutorials that are 10 minutes or less every week. Um, and I'm planning on doing a series of those on Ruby, on Ruby and Rails. And then I'm doing another one on JavaScript and React um, to start with. So... Um, I'm just getting all of the, everything set up. But if you sign up before Black Friday, um, I'm going to leave the price at $39 a month. So if you sign up within the next few weeks, uh, you can get that for $39 a month. Otherwise it's going to go up to 97. Um, and then, yeah, as we add more, uh, value to it, we're probably going to raise the price again after that. So, um, now's a good time to get in, but yeah, that's my pick. Uh, Patrick, what are your picks?
1: No, there was homework required.
0: Um, <laughs> it could be anything. If there's a TV you're, show you're enjoying, or a movie you liked, or hey, I was playing with this dev tool and it was awesome, whatever.
1: I mean, it's probably way too uh, on topic, uh, but uh, I just got back from Perf Now, uh, Performance Now mm-hmm. Conference in Amsterdam. Uh, and it is at this point the only and the main web performance conference uh, that remains. And uh, they're really good about releasing all of the talks on YouTube. So mm-hmm. in the next couple of weeks, um, that's going to be a really interesting playlist to look at because there were all really good conversations with some of the, the top people in the industry. And if you can make it, uh, it's some of the best people to just hang out with and, and chat on technical topics.
0: Nice. Amsterdam's a great city to visit too. So, All right. Well, I'm going to wrap us up then. Thanks for coming, Patrick.
1: Awesome. It was great chatting with you.
0: Yeah. And I, I see you have your social media handle on there. You're, any other place you want people to I mean, to
1: to I'm on all of, the, all of the social medias these times, these days. Uh, you can find me. Just look for Patrick Meenan or Pat Meenan uh, on whichever your favorite one is. You'll find me. All I'm right, always happy good. to, to and I, answer I, I,
2: I highly recommend following Pat if you're at all interested in web performance and stuff that's happening on, on some of the bleeding edge of web performance.
0: All right. Well, till next time, folks, max (laughs) out.